Well, praise the Lord. What God-honoring, God-glorifying songs, and thank you to the worship team in leading us in that aspect of our worship. Let's now turn our attention to a passage that we were looking at two weeks ago as we make our way through the first letter of Paul to Timothy. And last week, we were focusing particularly on verses 9 to 12, verses 9 to 12. Today, we are going to finish this portion of Paul's explanation concerning women in the church, godly women, Christian women. And our primary focus this morning will be verses 13 to 15. But let us read all of the verses from 9 to 15 this morning in chapter 2, just to again remind us of the context, and then we'll dive right into the final three verses. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 9. The word of the Lord says this, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Verse 13. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Let's pray. Father, this is your word that you have given to us. Help us to, like the Thessalonians, receive this not as the word of man, but as the word of God, which is what it is. Holy Spirit, I pray and ask that you would guide our comprehension of this passage and how we, as the body of Christ, can put it into practice. May we receive your word with thanksgiving, with joy, with a worshipful and humble attitude. And Lord, above all, may you be glorified, not only with the preaching of your word, but in the living out of this word as we fully depend on your spirit to guide us each and every day for the sake of your name and for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, I I hope that last week when we went through verses 9 to 12, as we come to this passage, which to many can be a challenging and confusing passage, and it has undergone tremendous scrutiny and interpretation and uh, contention and debate. But I hope, and this was my aim last time I, I was here, and of course will be this time as we look at the final part, I hope that for all of you, this portion of scripture for both men and women, I hope it was encouraging, an encouraging section of scripture that, as you obviously can tell, focuses on Christian women, godly women in the church, and how, as Paul says in verse 9 to 10, how they ought to dress modestly, discreetly, with proper clothing. 
but most of all that they are to clothe themselves with good and godly works as is, as is fitting, as Paul says, for a woman who professes godliness, as a woman who has been born again, saved, sanctified, and is now set on a course to glorifying and honoring God in her life. We also saw in this passage that women, in the context of the body of Christ, when gathered together in a service, women must learn and should learn in all quietness. Of course, that word quietness means that she ought to humbly and eagerly receive eagerly receive the instruction of the Lord from those men who are qualified and who have been placed into a position of eldership and that the women are not to usurp that role of leadership in the church which is again meant for qualified godly men as will be spoken of when you get to 1 Timothy chapter 3 Furthermore, the woman must learn and and submit with entire or all submission, as Paul states in verse 11, meaning that she, the woman, the Christian woman, is to submit, not partially, not in some way, but entirely, to the, the shepherding leadership of the church. She is, she is to submit to the God-given design and function of the church where qualified men, shepherds, serve and teach the church when they are gathered together. Um, but now, as we come into this section, and as I was saying, regrettably, as we have learned those wonderful truths in how we are to, as Christians, as chapter 3, verse 15 says, how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church I find it regrettable that this portion of scripture, which is supposed to be pastoral and encouraging and instructive in how the church ought to behave and act when they come together and in their daily lives, how this has suffered endless, endless attacks, especially in the last couple centuries, especially as um, the feminist movements and what is commonly called the feminist hermeneutic, a a way, a lens in which some people interpret scripture based on a feminist mindset, um, has come to the fore. And because of that, this portion of scripture has been relentlessly attacked. And of course, we all know while there are some major aspects of liberation for women that have been extremely good for society such as voting rights and the dignity of women and basic human rights that every single human deserves, much of the attacks has been a way to reorder and rebel against God's good design, good design for men and women. And now today, in our present age, We see the lines between manhood and womanhood erased, uh, trying to be completely erased, where so many are saying that masculinity is toxic and that a woman cannot be defined. Uh, The roles that God has given men and women have been virtually abolished in much of our culture. And there are so many these days that are saying that there's no longer any distinction between a man and a woman whether it's biologically or functionally. 
And in several cases, many are saying that women are superior to men or vice versa, or women no longer need men at all. And this has been the sad reality of our culture when people don't believe in God and his word. And in our passage, some try to temper the apostle Paul's instructions by saying, well, this was only for the church back then. It's not for us. It's no longer applicable for us. And then there are those who think that Paul here is being misogynistic, chauvinistic. Maybe he's being sexist or demanding male domination in the church from this passage. Some even have gone so far to say that Paul's instructions give the permission for men to be violent against women or sexually domineering over women, and they say that they get this from this passage that we are studying. Let me give you an example of this. There is one female theologian that I uh, looked up and found, and she's also an, an ordained minister. And she says this about this passage. She says, 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 15, particularly those verses, is one of the most misogynistic passages in the Christian sacred text. Now, as you read her article, which is about seven, eight pages long, it's apparent that she approaches this passage with this preconceived idea that it is nothing less, that the passage is nothing less than misogynistic and extremely extensively negative. And she repeats it all throughout. And thus she asserts that because of this text, women have been given a bad lot in life and in the church and have been wrongly denied pastoral ordination. She also goes on to argue that everything the writer, and she doesn't even think that the writer is Paul. She thinks no way could the apostle be writing this. She says that the writer, what he proposes is not for our modern era which our era has advanced in our postmodern society from the time that 1 Timothy was written. So she's saying that since 1 Timothy was written close to 2,000 years ago, the world has progressed away from the negative, women-hating instructions from this passage where women are objectified and subdued. And right now, in our age, we have matured as she says, toward women liberation, where women can fulfill the same roles that men fulfill in what she calls perfect femininity. And also, because the Bible, she goes on, was written by men, and all throughout church history, preachers have been men, that of course, because of that, there's going to be a prejudiced, male-focused interpretation of this passage. So we have to ask ourselves, is this how we are to approach this passage in 1 Timothy 2? Is Paul belittling women? Um, Is he putting them in their place as some would think that he or whoever the writer is they consider to be? Is this text negative? Is it misogynistic? Or do we take this text and see it as it really is? It's the word of God. Remember, part one of the sermon, one of the things I wanted to drive home, Paul here is being almost carefully, extremely, extensively pastoral and encouraging to the women. 
who are in the church. Yes, he's instructing godly women about how they are to present themselves and dress and live in a godly way and be discipled in the church. But he also encourages women to learn and grow as disciples of Christ. Something, Remember, something that scarcely happened back then during that culture, in that culture, especially as it was a very male-dominating factor of that culture. And these instructions that Paul gives are revolutionary and a blessing based entirely on the holy word of God. So as we move on in this passage from verses 9 to 12, what does Paul Paul appeal to? What does Paul appeal to as he makes his instructive statement about the way women are to learn? how they are to be discipled, behaved in the church, something that he says they are to do quietly and with entire submissiveness. Now, I want to pose, before we get into the reasons that Paul gives for his instructions in verses 9 to 12, I want to pose a few questions. I don't normally do this in every single sermon, but I think it is important to do this with this passage because of the myriad of interpretations that have been brought against this passage. Okay? Some questions to ask in regards to why Paul, why Paul gave these instructions is this. Does he give his instructions about women because women in Ephesus were uneducated? They weren't given a proper education like most men were back then? Well, I think we can certainly say no. There were several women back then who were highly educated. If you think about Priscilla, she was educated. She and her husband, Aquila, taught a godly man privately, not in the context of the church gathering, but they trained or retrained Apollos to properly preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Plus, there would have have been men back then who were uneducated just as much as women were uneducated back then, in the formal sense. So why couldn't that also be the argument for uneducated men, that they are to be quiet and entirely submissive? Here's another question. How about because there were false teachers infiltrating the church who were women? There were false teachers in the church that Paul tackles, with truth, but were there false teachers who are women coming to the church? Is that why Paul gave these instructions to women? I'd say categorically we can say no. Paul never once mentions women in 1 Timothy who were false teachers in the church. There were men, for example, in verse 20 of chapter 1, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom Paul has handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme, but he never mentions women by name who are false teachers and that that was a problem. Yes, there were women, of course, just like men who were being deceived by false teachers, but men can be deceived by false teachers, so why wouldn't Paul exclude men based on that logic, from leading and teaching if that were the case. How about this question? Is Paul saying that this is only for the women in Ephesus at that time, in that culture, and only for that church? We were talking about this today in the hermeneutics class before service. 
A lot of people, if they do not appreciate or like or want to take in a a text, they'll say, well, that's that's just for the people back then. It doesn't apply to us today. One of them is a well-known name, uh, William Barclay, who was a theologian, uh, liberal in many ways. He says that these verses are mere temporary regulations. They pertain to the apostles' time. They do not pertain to any other time. So we have to say no to that. And we already established from verse 8 of chapter 2, and I believe Dylan was teaching on that section, that Paul expects these instructions to be obeyed in every place, in every church. In verse 9, he says, Likewise, indicating that for the women, this also must be obeyed in every place, every time, in every church. So there are many people, I want you to be aware of this, there are many people, many interpreters, many theologians, many pastors who have crossed over land and mountain to come up with any interpretation of this passage other than the one that is the most straightforward and derived directly from this text. I have to say it again, it's actually quite simple. Um, there are some things that we have to get through to understand the full scope of Paul's meaning here, but it's pretty straightforward. And we just have to receive it again as God's word to us. So now let's look at our text. After that lengthier introduction and reminder that there are enemies of this passage and of the whole word and counsel of God, let's look at our text. Let's particularly first focus on verses 13 and 14. Now, in verses 13 and 14, you'll notice that Paul appeals to Genesis 2 and 3. We were in that portion of scripture this morning in our call to worship, talking about God's creation, perfect creation, very good creation, and there's so much that we can learn about our origin and how God has created us to be as men and women from the beginning of creation. And Paul uses and goes back to Genesis to validate his instructions about men and women, about teaching authority and leadership in the church. And again, while, while this passage has been dragged through, through the mud of endless and erroneous interpretations, it seems, again, like so many entirely miss the point of Paul's reason and explanation for why he is instructing women in this matter. In fact, I've read a number of commentaries, both liberal and conservative, and so many actually entirely ignore verses 13 and 14 and, and as if it's an inconvenient truth for Paul's explanation for women's role and function in the church and for the God-designed order for his church. So what is the heart of Paul's statements in 11 and 12 about women quietly receiving instruction with entire submissiveness, submissiveness, and not allowing a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Uh, As men and women here today in this church, Grace Community Fellowship, what is the reason for why you, why this church functions the way that it does according to Scripture to this passage about women and roles? So 
in verses 13 to 15, Paul is going to give three reasons, okay? Three reasons, if you want to divide these uh, few verses up. Three reasons for why women in the church are not permitted to teach or exercise authority over a man in the setting of God's gathered, assembled church. The reasons are entirely biblical. Amen? Entirely biblical. Look at verse 13 with me. Notice that little word at the beginning of that verse. The word for. The word for. Now, if you are acquainted with Paul's writing, you will see that word used frequently. Therefore, for. It's the Greek word gar. Not that that's important, but Paul uses that a lot. And this is vital to our understanding of this passage. Paul is using that little conjunction, that little word, to introduce the reason for why women should not teach and exercise authority over men in the church. And the majority of time that Paul uses that word for, especially, which he uses it often in the pastoral epistles, it's typically the majority of time for a reason, an explanation. Let me give you a reason for why I just stated these things so you understand the basis, the foundation for why I am giving these instructions. It's like if you have a little child, a toddler like I do, when you tell them to do something, what's typically the first word out of their mouth? Why? Because daddy said so, <laughs> right? There's, there is a reason, and you should do it. Sometimes there's a more elaborate answer, but there's a why. And Paul is saying, giving the why for his instructions. He begins first in verse 13 with the order and mandate of creation. And in verse 14, he'll talk about the deception of Eve to make his airtight ironclad case. Now, Paul's not the first one to have done this. If you remember back in Matthew in the Gospels, Jesus was being verbally attacked by the Pharisees regarding marriage and divorce. And they wanted to get or trap Jesus in his teaching and understanding of should we get a divorce. What do you say about this? And what does Jesus appeal to to give them their answer? He takes them back to Genesis chapter 2. God created them as male and female and that they are to be married for life. He appeals back to the very good order and design and creation of God in Genesis 1 and 2. And likewise, Jesus... Uh, Paul here is pointing to creation in Genesis as a basis for his directives in verses 9 to 12 of 1 Timothy 2. In this case, Paul is about to provide the reason or explanation, again, for why women should not teach. He's the, remember, the context is the church, okay, and how they are ought to uh, behave in the church and why women have different roles from men and why men have different roles from women. There is a reason, and the reason goes back to the beginning of creation. If you will, take your Bibles. Let's turn the pages all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. We'll start there. And I just want to read one quick verse, and that is 27. Genesis 1, verse 27. Very familiar verse. The word of the Lord says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he 
created him. Wonderful statement. Wonderful truth. And what that truth teaches us, that verse teaches us, it's a more general, more sweeping statement of God's creation to mankind, both male and female on day six. And what this verse teaches us is that God equally, equally created both male and female in his image. Okay? Both are created in God's image. Uh, Men are not a higher life form than women. Men do not have more of the image of God than women. And to both of them, God gave a mandate, as you see in verse 28 of chapter 1, that they are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, ruling over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So both male and female created in God's image, both given a mandate by God to procreate, to subdue, to rule over the earth. All of what God made, especially both male and female, as verse 31 of chapter 1 says, he says, it says, behold, it was very good. Okay, so we we are told that God equally created male and female in his image. Both are worthy of dignity and respect, and neither of them, none of them, is better or more advanced than the other. We have to understand that. But when you turn to chapter 2 of Genesis, we are given a more detailed account of how, how God formed the first man and woman. Skip in your Bibles to chapter 2 and look particularly at verse 7, where it talks about the account of the man being created or formed first before the woman. And it says in verse 7 of chapter 2, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now that word for formed in the Hebrew in verse 7 is very similar to the word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 2 for formed of the man being formed first. So there is a parallel there, okay? So when God created man and woman, who came first? The man did. He created him out of the dust. Because in verse 18 of chapter 2 of Genesis, God says that it is not good for man to be alone. What does that imply? It implies that when God created the woman out of the side of the man, which is in verses 21 and 22, that she came second. And this was all intended by God. And he intended Eve, the woman, to be the man, Adam's helper or helpmate. And because she was the helper, this does not imply subservience or suppression. This was God's intended good design from the beginning. Even God is considered our helper. And woman was created to be man's blessed and good helper. And so going back now 
to 1 Timothy 2. Flip back there. And we'll be going back to Genesis one more time, so don't forget that, but Genesis is easy to find. (laughs) Going back to 1 Timothy 2, what is Paul's argument for why women are not to teach in the gathering of the church and to exercise authority over man in the church in the sense of the men are to be the elders and the pastors? And this is it. It's the order, it's the purpose or the manner for which God created man and woman. All right, you can all go home. (laughs) It's really that simple. This was God's intended and good created plan. Adam was formed by God first, and then the woman was created after to be God, uh, sorry, Adam's helpmate, not his slave, okay? That's how some people, they put on their lenses, and that's how they read that passage. But the woman is an equal before God helpmate to the man, to Adam. You have to understand this. I'm going to drill this home again. Paul's basis for his instructions is God's good design from the beginning. Adam formed first, and Adam was given the responsibility by God to lead and provide and protect and oversee his family. And in this case, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in the context of the church, because of the creation mandate, men are to oversee and lead the church. And that includes teaching in the public sphere of the church when assembled. And again, women were created on equal footing. And this is the beauty of it, to have complementary roles with men. I want to bring you to another passage because this isn't, again, the first time Timothy talks about this matter. If you will, turn, to, turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. And we're going to look at a few verses here. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. Now the context of this is head coverings in the church and women wearing head coverings. We're not, gonna, we're not going to belabor that, okay? But I want you to see that Paul, even in this section, uses the same logic and truth to help the church understand the equal and, oh, I'm sorry, the, the functioning roles between man and women. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, he first talks about the Trinity and the order and design. I, I don't want to say design, so let me scratch that. You might want to take that out of the uh, recording. The Trinity. The Trinity was not designed. That is God. He's always been existing. Uh, But verse 3, look at this of chapter 11. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And this correlates to 1 Timothy 2 and helps us to understand all the more God's economy, that there is order, that there is structure, that there is a purposeful design. And again, you see that even amongst the Trinity. The woman, the woman at creation came from man, and this shows that there's similarity between the two, but also that there is dependence and origin. Let's read verses 8 to uh, verse 12. 8 to 12 of 1 Corinthians 11. It says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. 
For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And get this, and all things originate from who? God. So woman came from man according to God's creation, and the woman was created to be man's helper. That's a good thing. And in verses 11 and 12 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says both men and women need each other. Isn't that the truth? And thus God created both for a complementary purpose, and it all comes from him. That's what's so important to remember. It's all because of God, not culture, not what philosophers think, not what radical feminists say. It all comes from God, and we have to understand what his purpose of his design is. So there is nothing in Genesis 2 that states, this is important, okay, I, I, I you know, have to be honest. There's nothing in Genesis 2 that at all states that men are to have carte blanche power over women and that they are to dominate them or control them or oppress them. There is none of that, is there? We just read that. And you can read all of those passages and you'll never find anything that says men are to suppress the women and women are just to cower under their dominating control. Now, as we see in Genesis 3, we all know Genesis 3 is the account of the, the fall um, God said to Eve in verse 16 of Genesis 3, you don't have to, if you want to go there, you can, but God said to Eve in 3.16 of Genesis that your desire, Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. But don't forget, that came as a result of the fall. Sin has messed up the order for which God created man and women to function. There was a sinful and disruptive consequence to the roles of men and women and how men and women would now and do now until this day sinfully respond to each other because of what? Of the evil that is in their hearts. Because of sin, because of our sin, there is a struggle over lording it over others and ruling harshly. And women, says in Genesis 3, would now have this kind of ruling desire, that, that role that God never intended for them, that which he intended for the man to lovingly lead his wife. But now, as Christians, as those saved by the grace of God and have been given the Holy Spirit to walk in the ways of God Husbands, and here church leaders, as the context primarily is in 1 Timothy 2, leaders are to lead and husbands are to lead with a servant's heart. Not lording it over others. Didn't Jesus even say that? You are not to be like the Gentiles who lorded over each other. We are to serve. Even 1 Peter 5 reiterates that same truth about elders, shepherds, that they are not to dominate and lord it over others, but to lead by 
example. They must sacrificially serve in a loving manner, respectfully, compassionately, in seeking others' interests first above their own. This is the kind of loving authority that women are to submit to in the church. And again, it's not only women. Yes, Paul is focusing on women. But again, if you think of 1 Peter chapter 5, Paul, uh, Peter addresses young men and others in the church to be humble, for God opposes the proud. And if those leaders are serving in a sacrificial, loving, Christ-like way, you are to submit to them. And we talked about that last time in the last passage. If you missed that, I spent some time talking about what submission really means in Scripture. This is the kind of authority. Just because man was created first does not convey woman's inferiority and man's superiority. Rather, this all implies order, design, functionality, and roles exactly as God has designed it. What God said in the creation mandate in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 extends to all humans at all times. And yes, as we see in Genesis chapter 3, because of the fall and sin, that has wreaked havoc on this order. But as Christians in God's church, we are to live and obey as God instructs us from his word. We are not to follow the ways of the world, which which shifts like the sands all the time and typically does not align with the word of God. This is what we all must remember. Anytime we find ourselves, if you find yourselves talking to anyone, engaging in some kind of gender debate or role debate of men and women or even questioning this issue yourselves, are you always going back to the word of God and what his phenomenal design is for us? The culture is confused. The culture is defiant. The culture wants to go against the truth of God's beautifully unique roles for men and women because sinful culture has wholesale rejected him and his word. We must not, and we must proclaim the truth, live out the truth, teach the gospel to people so that they might know the truth and live according to God's ways, because God's ways are for our good. These aren't some kind of legalistic rules that we just must come under and slavishly obey them. We are worshipfully following him because what he intended is for your and my good. Okay. Furthermore, let's go on into verse 14. Paul gives a second reason. The first reason was the creation mandate that God gave in Genesis. And in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 2, Paul um, His second reason Paul gives is not only creation order and design, but Paul gives further reasons because of what happened that led to the fall. Okay, Paul says in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 2, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into into transgression. Paul is, he's obviously right. For again, if you go back to Genesis 3, if you go back to Genesis 3, You see what happens. You see what happens when the roles are reversed and man, Adam, we see there, is not leading. He's not protecting. We see the woman being deceived by the serpent as he comes and walks his way into the garden. 
And we see in Genesis 2 again, verses 16 to 17, God gave clear instructions that Adam must not eat from what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in that day God said, you will surely die. But in the garden when Satan came, we know it's Satan. Revelation says it's Satan. He came to who? He came to Eve. He didn't come to Adam. Hmm. Why is that? He came to the one, he came to the woman who was not supposed to be the leader or the protector. So it was Eve who was deceived by the serpent, not the man. Paul reiterates the same truth in 2 Corinthians 11.3. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Paul is talking to both men and women there. So obviously men and women can both be deceived by false doctrine. But Paul in 1 Timothy 2 is hearkening back to to Genesis. Because Eve did not rely on Adam's protection and leadership when the serpent came, she fell into deception by the serpent and she transgressed. She sinned against God. Yes, yes. We know that Adam sinned, right? Adam sinned. He, Adam, was allowing Eve's deception with eyes wide open. Apparently, he was standing right next to her. So culpability is not removed from Adam, who is the federal head, if you will, of the entire human race. And as a result of his disobedience, he led the entire human race into the fall of all humans. He is the primary one to blame for sin. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and verse 15. As a result of one man's transgression, we all were led into sin. So Adam sinned willfully. He sinned consciously. As soon as Adam ate of the fruit that Eve gave to him, things went from bad to way, way worse. But it was Eve, as Paul says, and as Genesis 3 says, she was the one deceived by Satan and his lies, not Adam. In fact, as the Greek emphasizes in verse 14 of our passage today, where it says it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived, that word deceived for the woman is utterly deceived. She was utterly deceived. She was more prone to be deceived. Uh, She abandoned her role as one under God's given leadership. She listened to the serpent instead, and the results were disastrous. In fact, in, in Genesis 3, verse 13, even Eve confesses that the serpent was the one who deceived her, and she ate. Even she admitted it. And so Paul affirms from Genesis once again that God created man to be the primary leader and when that leadership role is abandoned, consequences are catastrophic. When roles of men and women are erased or blurred or ignored, when God's design is thrown out the window, beware. 
Look what happened after Genesis 3. Christians, we cannot, we must not disregard God's good and perfect design. God created the man to lead particularly in the family and in the church. And as we established last time, it's not that women can't lead in any capacity. They lead as mothers. They can lead as teachers of children. They have been gifted by God, um, by the Holy Spirit in many remarkable ways and must use that gifting for the church and in her family. And many women are good leaders and teachers that's a significant blessing but at the same time when men are reduced as they are in our culture to being no good toxic weak and wimpy and when women are placed in a position position intended only for for men or when women usurp that role then the ramifications are bleak And the impetus of all kinds of chaos and sin and confusion can and will ensue. And so this is what Paul is warning against the church of the living God. And his instruction is exclusively, especially verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2, are exclusively based on God's design from the beginning of time. This isn't superiority this isn't subjugation it's about servanthood it's about following god's good ways and intended design for men and women and so in christ church male males men qualified men godly men are to be the pastors and elders and primary teachers of the church when gathered and some might hear that and say well that's not fair that's not fair is this about fairness Is this about who's better, men or women? None of us, right, deserve anything from God. None of us deserve anything from God except his judgment for our sin and an eternity in hell separated from the grace and glory of God. Jesus died on the cross for your sins and my sins. He took upon himself the judgment that you and I deserved and all who repent and have faith in him will receive full forgiveness of your sins and will come into an eternal relationship because of the grace and mercy of God. And because Jesus was exalted to the highest of places, to the right hand of God, he is the head of the church And because he is the head of the church, we must follow his directives and his ways for both men and women. And not only just follow him, but follow him gratefully and worshipfully and humbly, his directives in his word. Now, as we wrap up this passage, we have to look at one more verse, and that's verse 15. And so we see that Paul provided two reasons for his directives from verses 9 to 12. His first reason had to do with because of the creation mandate. His second reason had to do with Eve being deceived in the garden. But his third reason we derive from verse 15. Let me read that again. Verse 15. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. 
Now again, here's another verse that has come under blithering attack by so many people. Uh, I don't want to keep reminding you of this because you see it and live in it all week, but our culture has been inundated, inundated with teachings that womanhood and monogamous marriage and being a mother and raising children and taking care of one's home. So many people say, well, that's old-fashioned. That's boring. It's patriarchal. Uh, it's a burden. It's a form of slavery, even some go far to say, to keep women in the home. Let me just provide for you a few quotes from prominent female um, radical feminists, you could say. and It's almost hard to read these, but it's true. I found them in articles, and they're written in books, and they're taught on college campuses, and so so forth. And these radical people promote and hate God's design for the family and marriage and raising children. Listen to this. One says, homemaking women are prisoners in comfortable concentration camps. Another one says, since marriage constitutes slavery for women, it is clear that the woman's movement must concentrate on teching this institution. Freedom for women cannot be won without the abolition of marriage. Another woman says, the nuclear family must be destroyed. Whatever its ultimate meaning, the breakup of families is now an objectively revolutionary process. And finally, another person said, it should be illegal to be a stay-at-home mom. Much of our culture has bought into these ideas. And sadly, so has much of the church. But let's look at verse 15. Not with this modern-day thinking, kind of this perverted, unbiblical thinking, but as a pastoral and encouraging instruction to the women. And before, again, we look more deeply into this verse, I want to offer a plain and not, at the top, a plain and non-convoluted uh, understanding of this verse. Paul is, is, is simply telling the women that while you are not to lead or teach publicly in the church as a pastor, elder, and while there is a disgrace, as we found from verse 14, attached to the fact that the first woman was deceived and helped plunge the entire race into sin by her deception, you, women, have been given something by God that is paramount, that is of monumental importance, that offsets the stigma from the beginning of what happened with Eve and from the fact that God has not called you to be pastors, elders in the church. And What is this? What is this? It's this, simple. It's motherhood. It's rearing children. It's bearing children. It's particularly raising children to be godly. Now again, I understand that this verse has brought upon itself a number of different interpretations. And I don't want to spend here for the next 15 minutes or so unpacking them all. But I want to succinctly give them to you because it's important for you to understand how a number of people have understood this verse and why those interpretations 
really cannot be the true meaning of this verse. One is this. Some assert that Paul is saying that women will be spiritually saved, that they will receive their spiritual redemption, forgiveness of sins, if they have children. Well, can't we all conclude that's a really absurd and dangerous interpretation? Because Paul never, none of Scripture, not even just Paul, none of Scripture ever says someone is saved by doing this or that kind of work. We are saved by the work that Jesus Christ accomplished in his life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. All through grace, through faith, by what Jesus did. Period. And if we go with that logic, what happens to those women who are unable or never to have children? Are they not saved? Are they not welcome into glory because they did not or could not have children? So that can't be the interpretation. Some say this. Some say that Paul is talking only about Eve here. She is the one who will be saved if she gives childbirth. But if you look at verse 15, Paul uses a future verb here where it says women will be preserved or some translations say will be saved. Will be So I don't think Eve is the one who Paul has in mind here, even though she's close in the context of this passage. Plus, in verse 15, he switches from she to they in the middle of the verse when he says, if they continue in faith, love, sanctity, with self-restraint. They, meaning he goes from she, the singular, to they, the plural, in a more general sense, incorporating all women who are believers. Some others say this about how they interpret this, that women who give birth go into labor, that they will be protected during labor. Well, we know, (laughs) I I think there's some women laughing right now because you know that, you know, you've been through the turmoil and the challenges and the pain of giving birth. And we know that from Genesis 3 that because of the curse, women will have pain in childbirth but also that even women, some women can die during labor. So is that what Paul means here? I don't think so. It can't be what Paul means. Some hold to Paul saying that, that as an interpretation, that women will be saved through the ultimate childbirth, the ultimate childbirth, that of Mary who gave birth to Jesus Christ. Well, of course, we know there's some truth to that, right? because of Jesus coming into the world through the virgin, that he was a savior to his people and still is a savior. And we can thank God for the process that he chose to bring the savior into the world. But is that what Paul is getting at here? It seems kind of convoluted and not very straightforward if that is what Paul is saying here. We can, we can be sure that both men and women um, are not saved through Mary's giving birth to Jesus, not because of that act, not because of that labor. That is not what saves us. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that Mary's deed saves us. We know from Galatians 4, 4, it says that he, Jesus, was born at the right time so that he might redeem us. But it's not necessarily the incarnation per se or the delivery that saves us. Jesus saved us. 
the incarnation was the conduit of bringing the Savior into the world to save us, both men and women. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. So, Apostle Paul, what do you mean then here in verse 15? What are you getting at? Don't forget that Paul is already speaking to already saved Christian women. In fact, the last part of verse 15, it infers that Christian women are the ones being addressed. They're already saved by Christ alone. And that word that Paul uses at the top of verse 15 In my translation, in the NASB, it's preserved. In some of yours, it's saved. That that word has been the bane of many interpreters' existence. But you've got to understand that while that term mostly uh, has to do with uh, salvation or redemption from our sin so that we might be in a redeemed uh, relationship with Christ, um, it can have other meanings as well, such as preserved or to deliver or to rescue. And in light of this context, however, Paul talking about women's roles in the church and the first woman being utterly deceived in the garden, this is what this verse most likely means. If Christian women want to preserve themselves in a godly way or live in a godly manner in accordance with God's design, and if they want to grow in sanctification And if they do not want to go against the grain of God's intended design and roles for women, then they should raise children to be godly. Remember back in verse 10, Paul's talking about good works. And this is one of the good works. This is one of the aspects of sanctification that Christian women can engage in. It is in this area that women especially, I don't care what the culture says, men cannot have children. It is in this area that women especially can have a significant godly influence over the children that God has graciously given them. And this is just one way women can work out their salvation, as Philippians 2 says, in fear and trembling, sanctification. In other words, do not worry, women. Do not worry about not being given the role as public teacher and leader in the church. You have a monumental, big, important job to do. Have children. Raise children. Do not reject your call from God as mothers and homemakers and teachers of your children. Do not neglect living in such a godly manner so that they, your children and others, can imitate you and grow up themselves to be godly people. Even in 1 Timothy 5, verse 10, when Paul is giving instructions about widows, He talks about them having a reputation for good works and if she has brought up children. It's a wonderful and necessary and beautiful aspect of being a woman 
And now that if you are a Christian woman, that can be redeemed and you live for the glory of God in raising children to be Christ-like and godly in the manner in which, by the manner in which you live. And of course, that's if indeed you do have children. Because I understand that not all women can have children, whether for medical reasons or otherwise. Um, there, some remain single, which is not a bad thing that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Some have medical issues that present them, prevent them from having children. And that's okay because, again, Paul is not talking about eternal salvation here. He is showing how women can live out their God-intended role by childbearing and raising godly children for the next generation so that even though we are all under the curse, there's sin in us, we all need salvation by Christ, you can raise that child to grow up in a way where they become more like Jesus in a world that is wicked and sinful. Is this not reassuring to you? It is to me because this is beautiful because this is how God intends it. And he qualifies what he says at the end of verse 15. He says, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity or holiness with self-restraint or self-control. Paul is not saying that childbearing saves a woman. Of course not. Please don't walk out of here today saying, well, I have to have children if I want to be saved or if I want God's favor. That is not what Paul is saying. It's the woman's faith in Christ that saves her. But those qualities at the end of verse 15 are are ongoing Christ-like virtues that characterize every believer. And Paul is saying, this is how you ought to live in this manner. In fact, Paul tells Timothy in chapter 4, verse 12, A man, a pastor, to be a model in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, and to show himself to be an example of those who believe. And godly women are to live out the qualities as well that are outlined at the end of verse 15. Of course, in full dependence on the Holy Spirit. So walk away today knowing this from this passage. This is not imprisoning you. This is not slavery. This is not what the world is trying to tell you that your life is boring as a woman, that you have no purpose. Paul has a higher calling here for women. And not Paul. Paul's just a conduit as an apostle. This is God's high calling for women. Women, never let the world tell you otherwise. There are so many voices out there Do not let them get into your mind and take them away from what is written here in his word. You moms in this room, you moms are vital to the raising of godly children. Your influence knows no bounds. You can model a life of Christ-likeness and godliness to your children since they are most likely with you the most. Men, you have an important role as well in training up your child in the admonition and instruction of the Lord. But women, you are with your children all the time. Do not neglect living before them a life of purity and godliness and training them in the ways of Scripture. You can 
instruct them in the gospel. They're not going to get the gospel most likely in the public schools, but they can get the gospel from you and from you fathers and from even the women here who do not have children. You can train them in the gospel and teach them the gospel. You can pray for them every single day. And we need to pray for our children these days as there's such an attack on children each and every day. So yes, you have not only an important role and job to do, but you are mandated by God to do so. There are a lot of women in this church, younger, middle-aged, older, There are children in this church. You all can be an example of godliness and Christ-likeness to them. You never know who is watching you, right? I know my daughter is only four years old and there are some godly women that she follows around all the time. And whether you realize it or not, she or any of the children here are looking up to you and they can receive things from you that you don't even realize that they're picking up on. Let what they receive from you be godly and holy and gospel-centered. Let that woman, that, let that child be an integral part of your life. Women, you have important role to fulfill before God and by God and through God. It behooves us to obey his word, the one who knows us and created us best as Paul said in regards to Genesis, why would we want anything other than his will to be done in our lives? I hope that if this has been a challenge for you, this passage, I just want to encourage you to keep studying God's word, keep relying on God's word, keep going to God's word, and encourage one another to live out what God has for you in his word. Be like the Bereans. Be diligent in the understanding, studying, and application of God's word. Submit to him. Submit to his ways and his word. He will be pleased and you will be extremely blessed and God will be glorified in your life and through his church. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to a a conclusion to a close of 1 Timothy chapter 2. May you just take your words and indelibly instill them into our hearts and in our lives. May you guard us against the wiles, the schemes of Satan. Help us to know that we are not fighting against flesh and blood but against the principalities and forces and spiritual wickedness, Lord, that surrounds us and help us to put on the full armor of God and to wield the the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and fight the good fight of the faith and live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone here, Lord, who is struggling in the areas in which we were speaking today. Oh, Lord, would you help them? Would you guide them? Would you illuminate their understanding of your truth and help them to obey what is the best thing for them that's in your word? And Lord, if there is anyone here that has not received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, I do pray that today would be the day of salvation and that you would beckon them and call them to you and that you would open up their eyes to 
the sinful reality of themselves and that they need a Savior, Jesus Christ, would you do a remarkable work in their heart and save them by your grace so that they might have eternal salvation and know you eternally. Thank you for this church, Lord, and all that you're doing here. May you continue to grow it spiritually and even numerically as more and more people get saved. And we ask that you would bless the rest of our day as we go from here and walk in your ways by your spirit. Help us, O Lord. And may we do so with thanksgiving and worship and bless our fellowship now in the name of Jesus Christ. We all pray and say, amen.